Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 246 and part two of my conversation with the director of bands at Fisk University in Tennessee, percussion educator and performer, Thomas Spann Jr. Let's get right to it. Last week on part one, you got to hear about Thomas's current work and career in the Nashville area, his work with the Creative Soul Music Academy, and his growing up in South Carolina. This week on part two, we'll start with his undergraduate years at the historically black college university, Benedict College in Columbia, South Carolina. And a side note, I messed that up in last week's episode, incorrectly calling it Benedict University. My fault on that. We also get to his grad school years at Tennessee State, his world travels as a performer through the U.S. State Department, and our usual close to the show. So let's get to it. We recorded this conversation in two separate sessions over Zoom on May 17th and 26th, 2021, and it begins right now. So how do you end up knowing about or being aware of Benedict? Well, undergrad, I was introduced to Dr. Daniels via phone. Uh, we contacted Benedict. We used to go to Benedict's homecoming okay. um, from, from 1998 um, up until the, the, the year that I, I graduated. And even afterwards, we they, they, we went to Benedict's homecoming. So I knew about Benedict. And like you would march in their parade kind of thing? Yeah, I marched in their homecoming parade yeah. Yeah. as a high schooler. Mm-hmm. So I knew about the drum line. Yeah. I knew about the band. I would see the band at, at the Palmetto Invitational um, um Battle of Bands in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, that, that was hosted by Burke High School, uh, a high school that we played in football. And I would see Benedict over the years. Mm-hmm. And they intrigued me. I don't know what it was. Like the band, it, it, it went from a small 30-piece, 40-piece band to a band of an 80-piece, 100-piece band. Uh, at the time, it was about 80 students on the band, man, when I, when I joined. But I was very intrigued of how they develop over the years. And that that really um, pushed me on to be a part of the Benedict College family, man. Um, when I had that conversation with Sean Daniels, with Dr. Sean Daniels, um, and he told me what he was going to teach me on percussion. I said, man, it's not going to get no better than this. He's an American percussionist. Um, and at the time it was Mr. Mr. Sean Daniels yep. before, before he uh, uh, um, received his, his DMA yep. uh, discussion. And Mr. and Mr. D, that's what we call him, Mr. D, uh, uh, all this and me and everything. We talked on the phone. I played drum set for him over the phone. Mm. So that, that's what I, how our, our um, relationship started, when we playing drum set. Uh, so from the beginning, he knew that I was a heavy drum set player. Um, and, and the rest is history, man. I went on, I, I auditioned, he gave me a nice size scholarship and I said, you know, bye-bye, uh, any other schools that I was trying to go to, mm-hmm. I'm going to college. And Benedict had provided me an opportunity, me opportunity for me to be who I really was, Thomas, mm-hmm. nobody but myself. And I, I had many opportunities there to play 
drum set for the jazz ensemble for plays, uh, being part of the marching band, the wind ensemble, playing for church, playing for different people. Uh, it is, it has afforded me a lot of, a lot of opportunities, man. It, they paved the way for me, man. Being on TV a few times <laughs> with the marching band, that was, that's a great experience, man, being at Benedict. Very great. But it's because of me, guys calling Dr. Daniels. Uh, Dr. Daniels, uh, was a, uh, graduate, is a graduate of Alabama State. Mm-hmm. And my, my high school band director is an Alabama State grad as well. So that's not, that's the that's the connection, you know, Alabama State University. We talked a lot about the um, you know your marching experience here and there, but what was the concert percussion experience like for you? Oh man, I had to literally relearn relearn how to play. Yeah, it wasn't a thing of well, you broke I'm it down to the the complete beginnings. Like here we go. Here here's how you hold it. Here's, here's your wrist motion. Wrist <laughs> motion. Yeah. And, and I had to literally learn how to play uh, percussion again. Because the technique, I played drum set in church mm-hmm. all my life. Yeah. Literally all my life I played drum set. And I had to readjust my technique at the time because it wasn't, you know, where it needed to be. In my freshman year, I was still playing the sticks a certain way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. James would get on us about that technique and stick hike and everything. Mm-hmm. And at the time, he was studying at University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Yep. So he was learning these things. So everything he was learning at uh, UNCG, he was implementing, you know, at Benedict, man, yeah. heavily. So I had to change the way that I thought about concert, concert band music. Um, my approach had to be different. I had to watch videos, I had to listen to things. That that year, 2008, 2004, I had a chance to come to Nashville at 18 years old to pace it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The last time and it was there. Basic man, I saw so much concert percussion playing. I'm like, man, I was exposed to so much of it. I said, Oh, that's what. Doctor, that's what Mr. D is telling us to do. Uh, so that helped me in listening to the recordings and seeing it mm-hmm. to adapt to concert uh, playing and concert percussion technique wise. Listening to the parts, listening to the horn players, listening to uh, the baritones, what their part is, what two players, and when to come in and when to come out, uh, and phrasing and everything, man. And then they would have, I would see like. Little, I remember asking Dr. Daniels one day, why is it little notes above the big notes? Uh, he said, well, that's the part that the horn players are playing. So you got to, you know, play your part along with it. Just telling you that this is the, the line, the phrase that they're going to be playing while you playing this part. So, you know, it, it took some time to understand, but eventually I got it. I started practicing, you know, for me, for concert band, for that type of playing, yeah. Uh, what's it called? Classical percussion. Right. I practiced classical percussion about two hours a day yeah. in my freshman year. By the time I got to my senior year at Benedict, I was practicing about three to four hours a day, five days a week. And I tell my students, you, know, you got to put the time in for you to perfect this, to read that music and accomplish sight reading and our new pieces that we give you. You got to put the time in at least an hour of time you should be putting in. Yeah. 
the minimum. Mm-hmm. The minimum. <laughs> yeah. For me, four hours. <laughs> the best. Yeah. When you were there, did the I think because I think uh, Javon said this that you all didn't. There wasn't a lot of with the band with the marching band. It wasn't like much travel. It was it was mostly like home games that you were doing and like yeah, we did a lot of home games. We had a few trips that we went on, mm-hmm. and the few trips that we did was like we went to games like Clark Atlanta, mm-hmm. Morehouse. Yeah, we traveled too because that was like you know Atlanta was like about three four hours away. Yeah. Uh, every time I go back home to travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, to to uh, Columbia to stop and check on my sister and my family members. Um, you know, and I travel back home and I come from home to Columbia, then Columbia to Atlanta. It's about about a three hour, three three four hour drive. So it wasn't that too far of a distance mm-hmm. uh, for us. So we can drive to Atlanta and go do a game, and then come back to uh, to Columbia, South Carolina that same that same night. So it was doable. Yeah. Uh, and I remember those games being at Morehouse and being at Clark Atlanta, mm-hmm. uh, you in the Atlanta area. That's the, like the, you know, they call that the, I forgot the name of what they call, but Spellman is nearby mm-hmm. Clark Atlanta, Morehouse. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, uh, at the time when they had, uh, now the current day, Morris Brown is back open yeah. uh, now, but Morris Brown was nearby. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we would see, you know, these schools in Atlanta, man, it had a different feel. Atlanta had it, it still does had that, mm-hmm. you know, that, that feel to it. Uh, you know, the culture there, the black culture there in Atlanta, man, you can feel it when you when you drive through Atlanta mm-hmm. and you land at the stadium at Clark Atlanta Morehouse, you can feel that culture yeah. there. You see the you see the the grills set up on the hills. You right. see the fraternities yeah. and sororities have their tents set up. Mm-hmm. At the games, and this is not homecoming. This is a regular game. Well, that yeah, <laughs> that's different. <laughs> so a lot of that going on, right? Um, and then you see the marching band. You know, like we would play at Clark, Clark Atlanta, and I remember playing at Clark. You, they didn't have a. I don't know how it is now, but on the other side, there wasn't a uh, actual wasn't no bleachers. So it was like one set of the stadium was like one long row of bleachers. Yeah, yeah. so we would sit on one side. Right. And then Clark Atlanta fans on, on, on the next side. Right. So it was that was interesting to me being at Clark. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had to literally like look over like this and right. if they wanted to play something. You didn't uh, play across the, the crowd. <laughs> we had to oblique to the crowd right, yeah. so they could hear what we were doing. Right. Exactly. <laughs> at Clark Atlanta. But I, re- I remember those experiences being in Atlanta, man. Uh, but we did not travel uh, a, a whole lot. Uh, but the traveling that we did do was like Atlanta or Fort Valley. We would play mm-hmm. Fort Valley yeah. uh, State. We would travel to those games uh, we would go to. But a lot of it, we did a lot of home games uh, in Columbia. But I remember the few trips that we had uh, was Atlanta trips, mm-hmm. Morehouse, Clark Atlanta, Fort Valley. We would, mm-hmm. we would go to those games, man. Uh, we would go to those. Like we, we those, those were like a must when we saw that. Yeah, we going to Atlanta, and we had a lot of kids from Atlanta, so yeah. it was a good thing for them. Their families see them oh, march yeah. at yeah. those games, man. Kids that were from Atlanta and Augusta as well. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, although it sounds like you you would make those trips in one day, right? Like mm-hmm. you go down, play, and come back. Yep. 
Boy, yep. what, what did the bus smell like after the game? Man. <laughs> <laughs> People. Yes. That was outside. Right. Yeah. In the heat. For a long time. Yeah. <laughs> like and outside. uniforms. And uniforms. Yeah. So, Woo. you know, it, it, it's <laughs> one of those things, man. The people outside in uniforms all day. Yeah. And 89 degree weather. So yeah. you can imagine, man. You know the reality <laughs> of being in that in that environment, man. But it was those were fun times, Pete yeah. at Benedict. Oh, yeah. um, you know, we recently lost two band members, mm-hmm. um, and, and just and when I look at the pictures of the memorial of them, man, it just I, I go back to those days of being being on the band and, and going to Atlanta, man, going to Fort yeah. Valley. Uh, those were some interesting, beautiful. Um, times, man, yeah. being at Benedict, man, you know, I, I, I really, I thank Dr. Daniels and Mr. Bell for instilling all the knowledge in me, uh, and being a, uh, and a great educator and band director, man. Uh, a lot of what they were telling me, I'm seeing it now on the other side as a professor. So, Oh, that's what they're talking about. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh Yeah. So, yeah, when you'd be like, wait, now when you told me that thing that was going to happen when I was uh-huh. in this position, that's happening yeah. now. <laughs> it's happening now. Yeah. I have a lot of conversations when I when I talk with Dr. Daniels about what I'm currently doing. I said, man, Doc, I'm starting to see what you're talking about. Yeah. Said, I told you. I told you, you know, those things, what, you know, what happened. He said, as long as you stay in your lane and do what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Everything is going to work out for you, man. Just, you know, have a, have that, keep that vision in mind and, uh, you know, follow that plan that you have in mind. And, you know, you and Marvellous work together to have a great program at, at FIST, man. You know, it's just a great thing. And I, my assistant band director at FIST, we knew of each other um, at, from being at TSU. Mm-hmm. And at the time I was in grad school, I was teaching at, at TSU yeah. uh, when he was an undergrad. So I knew of him playing in the jazz band and stuff. So, and then playing in the city as well. So it was a great thing for us to be working together. Now, do you end up going right to Nashville when you're done with your undergrad and right to, right to TSU? Yep. When I, when I left Benedict in 2008, Mm -hmm. um, I spent two months home, uh, uh, back home in Edytown, South Carolina with family. I already signed away to go to Nashville, Tennessee. I already had a graduate assistantship at Tennessee State University. I made the decision while I was at Benedict that I was going. I, I had I had to go. I had to leave South Carolina because I had some more things that I wanted to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so immediately within August, I remember like yesterday, August 17th, mm-hmm. 2008, I got on the road with my father. My father drove me uh, eight hours, nine hours to be exact, to Nashville, Tennessee. We got to Nashville, Tennessee, and I, I wondered why the time was so early. I was like, it was like one thirty. Oh, the time! Yeah, the when time change. Time <laughs> change. Yeah. So I'm thinking it's gonna be about two o'clock, three o'clock in the day. Right. It was one thirty, Pete. Yeah. When I rolled up to that, uh, we called Dr. Daniels and said, hey, where do we go from here once we got off the exit? He mm-hmm. told us where to go. We got to uh, Performing Arts Center. 
And the first thing I saw at Tennessee State, you won't believe it, was the Tennessee State University drumline. Mm. That was my introduction to Tennessee State. Mm-hmm. And they were playing some kind of funk groove when they were yeah. marching. Mm-hmm. Doc was working with the drumline. Yep. So my introduction was drums. Mm-hmm. <laughs> A drumline of red, red pearl drums. Yeah. Playing. The red pearl drums I've seen over the years, mm-hmm. I got to see it up close and personal. Mm-hmm. And and that was my introduction to Tennessee State University. They were yeah. in pre-drill at the time. Um, I came in August because I was a graduate assistant mm-hmm. for Dr. Daniels. He wanted me to work with the marching man. Mm-hmm. So uh, funny thing, when I got here to Nashville, Tennessee, of course, you don't have nowhere to stay. You try to find out where you're going to stay at. So I called the dormitory room before I came mm-hmm. and they had a couple of co- apartment complexes on campus. Mm-hmm. And I told them, hey, I work with the marching band. I'm a graduate assistant. Mm-hmm. And I'll be working with the marching band. And when they heard marching band, mm-hmm. they got excited. Oh, you with the marching band? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We got a room for you. We we, we got you the graduate system. You in grad school here? You getting your master's degree? You work with the marching band? Yeah, we, we got you. Come on. So that was my saving grace. My first place I stayed at, and I want to thank Miss Bass. Mm-hmm. Um, she still works. I believe she still works at Tennessee State. Miss Bass. Um, had a had a room for me, man, mm-hmm. at Ford Complex Apartments, right across the road from the from campus. You know, on campus, mm-hmm. I stayed there uh, until you know until I graduated, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they they helped me out a whole lot. Had a place to stay, and I rode on the the shuttle bus to campus, and 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 we had I had some great years, man, at at, at, at Tennessee State from 2008 yeah. and as a student. I mm-hmm. uh, learned a whole lot, man. And within those two years, man, I was able to meet so much people mm-hmm. that Tennessee State helped to uh, pave the way for me to travel the world playing music because I met somebody, a bass player at a church I was playing at that was working with some songwriters. Mm-hmm. And I traveled the world because of being at Tennessee State. What seemed similar? I mean, obviously, okay, you're a grad student, so that's, that's one part that's obviously different. But mm-hmm. aside from that, what what seemed similar or different from being at Benedict to being at Tennessee State, just overall, like school-wise or marching, but whatever things that come to mind? The similarities was that the accountability mm-hmm. um, part, yeah. The, the accountability was big at Benedict and then at Tennessee State as well. For you to practice, be on time, be there. If you say that you're going to do something, do it and don't re- renege and, and be be a man of your word. So that was the same. Yeah. Uh, what was different? Benedict was more of a, a, a smaller music department, uh, but we had everything that Tennessee State had. Uh, but the only thing that we did not have at Benedict, you know, we were, they were working on it at the time after I graduated was like a music industry program. Mm-hmm. And our music industry program at Tennessee State uh, was commercial music. So I, 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 if it had commercial music at, at Benedict, I, I probably would have mentioned in commercial music, uh, to be real, um, at, at Benedict. You know, at the time we had a, a, a BA program in general music, uh, which I graduated under. And my, my emphasis was on instrumental music. 
uh, at Benedict. So the differences was that the program had a little more things to offer uh, at Tennessee State at the time. Uh, you had commercial music uh, performance and commercial music uh, recording, the audio engineering um, aspect of it, along with music education and people that wanted to major in music or take up a baccalaureate program for those who wanted to be certified in music education. Uh, so we did have music education at Benedict and had a BA program in general music. And at the time, it, uh, we had other professors that came after Dr. Daniel started to, to develop the uh, music industry program at Benedict. So Benedict didn't get that music industry program until the uh, cussing instructor was there. Um, uh, Mr. Orlick uh, mm -hmm. started to bring in poetry and logic uh, to Benedict and teaching them music industry uh, standards and things, how to record. All of that was going on after I graduated, man. So, you know, something that I wanted to get into at the time. Uh, but, you know, it, it's, it was, you know, in the works, but I didn't see it until after I graduated and come back and visit it. I saw, oh, they got music studios and stuff at my alma mater. Cool. I wish that this was here when I was there. But however, uh, you know, the, the, the difference was that they had more programs at Tennessee State at the time uh, for them. Of course, the marching band was like 200 plus. Mm. So, you know, when I walked into the band room at, at you know, at, at uh, Tennessee State, you see 200 plus students <laughs> on band. Benedict at the time had about, you know, about 100, 120 students, man, marching in the band. Uh, fast tracking to homecoming 2018, though, I walked into the band room in 2018 at Benedict at my alma mater. That was about 180 students, almost 200 students in that band room. It was not enough room. <laughs> yeah. it, it, the band has grown. I believe they, you know, they're, they're, they're pushing over yeah. 200 students um, at my alma mater. Then at, at, at my my graduate school at Tennessee State is about 300 plus. Um, you know, it just, it just, that's, you know, the, the history of the program. Uh, and that's what I'm doing at FIS. I'm, I'm pushing for that to happen one day. Mm -hmm. But until then, I'm going to continue growing our program, uh, you know, in our beginning stages, man. But that comes with time and, and uh, support yeah. uh, of alumni. And, you know, former students that marched in 1971, marching pet band. I'm in contact with right now with one of the former members mm. of that of that band from Fish University. Uh, but uh, it's, it's just a it's a beautiful tradition. I will say both both alma maters, man, have a be beautiful tradition of band. Yeah. Um, and that family, I will say that family feel of being in a family. I felt that at both schools, at Benedict and at Tennessee State. You know, I, I recently did a homegoing service hmm. for Senator Thelma, Thelma Harper, who was a graduate of, uh, of Tennessee State University, and I felt at home. Yeah. When I played for that homegoing service, I felt at home, man. People that haven't seen me in years since 2018, like, oh, hey, how you doing? I ain't seen you in a while, man. How you been? You still here? So now I'm at, at Fish University. You run into people, man, in the city that remember what you did at, you know, at your alma mater. So they, they remember it. And my name comes up. Your name came up in a conversation. And so on, so on, so on. So, you know, uh, we remember you being at, ten at Tennessee State. Uh, that happened to me last night. I, you know, being in a meeting for a summer camp. 
Yeah. Uh, the communications person remembered me. She was like, I know him. And he worked at Tennessee State. So it's that, those things for me, that family-oriented feeling, being in the family, uh, that's that's that feeling I got at both both schools, man. Yeah. It's like no other. Yeah. And when you get to Nashville, do you sounds like you get kind of into the, the local church scene there too, right? Yes, sir. I did. The first church I played for was a Reform Episcopal church. Mm-hmm. Very different. <laughs> I was raised up Pentecostal, man. We yeah. played Praise the Lord, everybody, right. at this temple. Mm-hmm. Real was hymns. hymns. Yeah, yeah. I'd have played like I was playing a concert band mm-hmm. when I played for that church, for that Reformed Episcopal church. Yeah. They did a lot of hymns. Mm-hmm. Uh, they drank actual wine mm-hmm. for the communion. Yep. It was this is wine for real wine. Yeah, yeah, you know, no, it's wine. Wine. <laughs> <laughs> not juice. Right. So that was the difference for me. <laughs> you know, doing communion with them. And they did this every Sunday. Mm-hmm. Every Sunday they did do in remembrance of me. Yeah. They did communion. Uh so that was different for me. From that tra- I transitioned to playing at a church I visited at the time. I was visiting. I would go to that church and play, then I would go to visit a uh, Pentecostal church that was mm-hmm. on campus at the time, Judah Temple of Praise. Uh, Bishop Kelvin Levy was was the pastor. Is the pastor there? Uh, and there, since then, that moved on to Shelby Avenue here in Nashville, Tennessee, Judah Temple of Praise. Uh, they, they were more on my speed, mm-hmm. so they're more of singing. You know, the the praise the Lord, everybody type mm-hmm. tunes. The Donald Lawrence's, the Hezekiah Walker's, the blessing of Abraham yeah. tunes. They're more and more contemporary gospel. Mm-hmm. And when I ran into them, started playing for them, man, uh, the mu- minister of music at the time, he played on the Bobby Jones gospel show mm-hmm. <laughs> every week. He played either drum set or play bass. Yeah. Uh, he was involved in that scene. Yeah. Um, he played for, you know, Darwin Hobbs, played drums on Darwin Hobbs' uh, gospel album, uh, one of his albums. Uh, so we would play those tunes in church, and he's like, "I play for Darwin Hobbs," uh, and that's not how that part goes. So the, the, the and at that time I was playing percussion, yeah, yeah, for for Judah Temple Praise. So he like when they play percussion, man. Well, Javier Solis played with us, man. Our so and so played for us. This is how he played. So he would tell us how they were playing it in the music industry. So at that church, I got uh, a chance to learn from somebody that was in the industry that play, he played for. Um, where people like Dewey Powell and playing for Hezekiah Walker. Uh, he played bass for these guys. He played drums for Darwin Hobbs. So he knew how that stuff go. The piano parts he knew. Mm-hmm. The vocal parts he knew. Uh, and, and then you would see him on TV playing <laughs> on Bobby yeah. Jones for these people. So the songs he was doing on Sunday with us, you would see him on Bobby Jones Gospel on BT playing the same tones. You know, you know, uh, the Jonathan Dunn's uh, songs we, we played you know i had a chance jonathan dunn's nephew uh is a graduate of tennessee state university he's here in town uh, and james dunn he plays phenomenal pianist and organist man i got to work with man while at tennessee state get him some pointers on things he was working on and he put his this uncle on the phone this is my uncle jonathan dunn i said you're gonna put put the songwriter uh uh gospel singer and he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. He's excited about it. I talked to him on the phone, and he said, man, we got to get up, man. I said, man, I love your music, man. 
We saw your music over the years at, at the church I used to play at, Judah Temple Praise. Uh, so Judah Temple Praise gave me opportunity, man, to be uh, a part of the you know gospel scene a little bit, man. I got to play on Bobby Jones Gospel with Judah Temple Praise a few times. Play for Bobby Jones' uh, birthday celebration at Mount Zion. Uh, I got to play for Dottie Peoples, uh, uh, playing for Judah Temple Praise. So it was a great opportunities I had at Judah. Uh, from there, I, I currently play for Stateland Missionary Baptist Church out in uh, Hermitage, Old Hickory, Tennessee. Uh, my pastor is Pastor Robert Robert Willis uh, Jr. So you know that's that church family is you know it's Missionary Baptist. And being being playing for them, man, it's it's, it's a beautiful thing, man. It's been supportive over the years of everything I'm doing, mm-hmm. um, and education and music, liking my Facebook videos when I'm playing drums and stuff. Mm-hmm. Very supportive of what I do, man. Um, family and all that stuff. So that's family right there, Stateland Baptist Church. You know, when you move to Nashville and you start and you start like getting involved in the in the and this is like specific to the church part. Like, how do you how do you get involved? I mean, would you just like say, would you did you know someone at some of these places? Would you I know some would you ask? Would you ask, like, when are you practicing? Can I sit in? Like, mm-hmm. how, how does how does someone actually like turn it into well, something that would that could be a gig for me? I was introduced to Judah Temple of Praise through some classmates. Okay. And two of the classmates, three of them were ministers okay. at the church. Yeah. And they sang on the praise team. Okay. So that was my my go-to. Mm-hmm. And they introduced me to the music director and told them. And the bishop was like, uh, how many Tennessee State University students we got here that 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 is on the band? So we all stood up. Yeah, yeah. Like 10, 12 of us, man. Yeah. What instrument you play? What instrument you play? We're going to have you playing on next Sunday. I'm like, what? <laughs> really? So he went out, and I remember them saying, having talks with me playing percussion. Yeah. He literally went to the Pearl Drum Warehouse. He knew he had a contact. Uh-huh. And I, this is my first time going to Pearl. I never, yeah. you know, I've never been there. I got the hand pick when I wanted and pick it up from Pearl. <laughs> this is years before I got Signed with Pearl. Yeah, I was already. I already had a a a, a connection, mm-hmm. a relationship with them already. Yeah, and you know, I wasn't an artist with them. I was a student. You know, I was learning how to play. You know, learning to be a band director, learning to be a um, all around percussionist. Yeah, and you know, by me by him being instant, I pass a love music. He yeah. he still does. Uh, Bishop Lee, I still consider him like a a, a, a spiritual leader mm-hmm. in my life. Uh, and that really landed a gig for me, just knowing those classmates mm-hmm. and, and you know, knowing people. Here in Nashville, if you, they call it the hang. If you hang out, you'll pretty much get to know uh, where to play at and who's hiring for gigs and stuff. Mm-hmm. Just hanging out at different venues and different churches uh, that have some music and different people playing there. And it's about who you know. You can know a lot of stuff. Right. You know many things. But if you don't know the right people, man, uh, you kind of, you know, you kind of in limbo until you start opening up your mouth and say, hey, I play drums. Mm -hmm. Do y'all need a drummer? Hey, I play percussion. 
And uh, and I'm interested. And once you say that, it's open door for you. Open the doors for you to be able to, to play and do your thing. And that open doors for other things as well. Well, and it helps that you are a professional and you show up and you, you on time. You do on time. <laughs> like when they tell you, yeah. You and you can play. You know, Very important. and you're a nice person, and you people, other well, people I mean, want to be around you. The most important thing that I learned from playing for Judah Temple of Praise mm-hmm. is being on time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Being on time. Me being on time afforded me a lot of a lot of opportunities. Yeah. And because of that, I've been able to play for a lot of people mm-hmm. over the years. I've been able to take play gigs that people other other drummers been playing. But because of me being on time and having a good attitude, mm-hmm. I, I was able to take on that gig. Yeah. And that helped me to grow my 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 performing um career. Mm-hmm. And I, I performed quite often. Mm-hmm. Before COVID, I was constantly on stage mm-hmm. playing for somebody. Now that the 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 uh United States is opening up more, Nashville's opening up more, man. We've been doing a whole lot of a whole lot of playing, you know, quite often. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned uh, when you're kind of explaining, you know, your when your path to getting involved with Fisk is that you said you had gone on tour. Um, yes, right? sir. You, you did like a, a world tour, I think. And you said that you went, because I believe we talked about this on the phone, that you, yep. went, to, you went to South America and Africa. As yes, part sir. Of this. So tell me about, where and how and all that for that particular tour and the influence there. Yeah. This was with the U.S. State Embassy, uh, the, the U.S. State Department. Okay. And I was playing for the embassies uh, with them with the English Immersion Program. Okay. And at the time, I was playing with a band called Blended 328. And Blended 328, literally the name uh, said it itself, was a blended group of different people from different cultures and backgrounds. Uh it was me, the bass player from my church, that introduced me to them, African-American, uh, the singer, uh, one of the songwriters, the wife of one of the, the songwriters was African-American. He was Hungarian. Mm-hmm. The guitar player was uh, part Ukrainian okay. uh, from Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the singers was part Ukrainian, <laughs> and she's from, um, uh, I forgot where, where she was from, from the West Coast. Okay. Uh, then our one of the, the other singers, she was um, Asian, uh, Asian American. She was Asian. She grew up in America, but she was Asian. Mm-hmm. And then our fiddle player was from Alaska. So you might as well say he's part Russian to Ukraine as well, because you know Alaska's right there by 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 Russia. So it's a mixed cultured group. Mm-hmm. Um, so we came together along that we were asked. Uh, I was asked to be in the group and play percussion and then other people came in and then we got, got a call that uh, they wanted us to be in Mexico uh, through the contact of uh, uh, one of the singers, Kimberly, uh, one of the uh, singers who was Asian. Mm-hmm. And we got, got an uh, introduction to the state department and we said, well, we, we can actually go on tour and do this. And they said, yeah, mm-hmm. fill out this paperwork, talk to these people, mm-hmm. get your passport and we can go from there. And, you know, uh, that 2013, we traveled, and that's where I went to South America. I went to uh, Brazil, mm. Brazil, Brazil, 
beautiful, man. It's like Brazilia Brazil is like reminds me of being in the capital city of like Washington, DC, or <laughs> being downtown Nashville, the nice areas. Uh, I got to immerse myself into the Brazilian culture, how they dance and how they play instruments. Mm-hmm. They play songs for like 20 minutes long, mm-hmm. uh, one song, and they dance a long time. Yeah. So I learned that about the Brazilian culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, they stretch songs are real long. Mm-hmm. Paraguay, all those, a little bit different. They, they're they not going to be you know, stretching songs out 20 minutes long. They, the difference between uh, Brazil and Paraguay, Brazil, they speak Portuguese. So yeah. the Portuguese culture is there. Mm-hmm. Paraguay is more Spanish. The Spanish mm-hmm. um, is there. Uh, so that was a beautiful, I had to order food in Spanish in, in Paraguay. I couldn't speak in English at all to them because they would not understand yep. what I was saying. So I had to say, y pollo, uh, y papas fritas, uh, y agua, mm-hmm. si. And they're like, oh, you want chicken, french fries, and water? And they said, y uh, vente, uh cinco. Uh, pesos, so that's $25. Right. <laughs> I, and I knew enough to, you know, get by yeah. while I was there for those those three weeks, man. Uh, I didn't go hungry. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I had a translator on my phone. Mm-hmm. Africa, totally different, man. When I went to Africa, we landed in Ethiopia, and oh, then we had a connection. Other side. <laughs> yeah, east, other side. east coast of Africa. <laughs> yeah, it was like far east. Coast. Yeah. Uh, then we landed in Zambia as a connection flight. Zambia took us to Zimbabwe. Okay. When we got to Zimbabwe, you think they can be speaking uh, in the Shona and Wele language? Not so. Mm-hmm. They were speaking like me and you mm-hmm. in fluent English. Yeah. And the reason why, because of the, the colonization and travelers from the British coming down to Africa, and they t- taught their their language, taught their culture. So English is very heavy in Zimbabwe, man, mm-hmm. in Harare. And uh, so it wasn't hard for me to get around. And uh, money-wise, you didn't, ha- didn't have to exchange U.S. dollars because they still they use U.S. dollars in oh, Zimbabwe. Okay. Um, so that was real cool. The Zim dollars not really, you know, worth a whole lot as far as the currency. So they currently use our, our money system mm-hmm. uh, in, in Zimbabwe. So that's the that's the connection that they have with the U.S. They use our, our dollars. Uh, musically wise, Pete, in both places, South America and Africa, you can imagine <laughs> where you hear the authentic mm-hmm. African South Sub-Saharan African thumb kalimba and and mm-hmm. and, and yeah. being played. Them playing the balafones. Mm-hmm. Uh, man, it was amazing to hear them play those pentatonic scales and yeah. play those those rhythms and, and melodies, man, on the Enbiras. The Enbiras right. had pick up, um, kick, um, guitar pickups in them yeah. to amplify the sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the ball and, they're singing, and they're singing over it. And they're too. singing. Yeah, <laughs> that's normal. <laughs> Playing and singing is completely and normal there. It's like very normal for them to Ole, 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 
So imagine you seeing about six to eight Embira players mm-hmm. on stage playing. Yeah. And they're interlapping, they're, they're interlocking uh, hockets yeah. of, of sounds mm-hmm. going on. So you hear... You hear all of this on stage, man. The beautiful thing. And just in bearer playing, mm-hmm. no notes, no vocals, no drums, just that. Yeah. For them, like, and you see them having the, the actual gourds uh, mm-hmm. to amplify the sound. Yeah. Uh, and then when I went to the, the festival there in Zimbabwe, Horari Fest, uh, the festival called the Haifa Festival, it took it up like a hundred notches. Mm-hmm. So you walking around the festival, you see people playing on instruments, man on different stages and then you see people selling instruments people knew in, in that that was in the city they would come by and play the instrument i got a video i got seen that video of them playing on the, the ball phones mm-hmm. uh the, the african drums the whole shoe mm-hmm. shakers and the the dancing and the uh the this all of that that they even, they even had people rapping mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that we was with some guys chilling and having a good time, and we sat down and ate at a picnic table, and they, they asked us, are you from the U.S.? Yeah, we're from the U.S. Mm-hmm. And immediately, he started rapping. <laughs> These are our brothers from the U.S. They came by, back to the motherland. They took them away, and they came back to the motherland. And they're here chilling with us at the Hyper Festival. They were just rapping, man, the whole time. <laughs> just making up stuff off the top of their head. And I was like, man, I was almost in tears, Pete, because I felt at home. Yeah. Um, even everybody felt at home. Yeah. In Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. Everybody felt at home. It's the motherland, man. When they say it's the motherland, it really is. Yeah. It it really is, man. When you, you that experience is just it's like no other. That was my most one of my most favorite trips was was Zimbabwe, Africa. I loved yeah. it. I loved it. What's interesting about the some of like when you're doing all this traveling is that you start realizing that um, all of these countries, it's very typical for for the population to know two plus languages. Like mm-hmm. like it's it's unusual for for the people in the United States, but every but most other places in the world they know English and then <laughs> a local or something like that. Some of them, a lot of them are either trilingual or bilingual or quilingual. Yeah. Um, just because of what they're around, man, it, it just it comes with the territory. You know, I, you know, it's just some places um, I went to, like I went to Kazakhstan. Mm-hmm. They were speaking broken English and <laughs> they were amazed to see uh, black Americans oh, wow. uh, in Kazakhstan. They said, oh, shoot. Black man. <laughs> that was an expression. Uh-huh. They 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 literally said that to me. And in other places I went to, they were very amazed, man. Uh and and and, and I would ask them, I said, why y'all, why you all do that? They said, Well, the, normally when we see African people, mm-hmm. uh, they say we see people from, from Africa that they, they are students, they're international students, so they have a different way, different swag and the way that they carry themselves mm-hmm. versus people from the U.S. We're immersed into the pop culture. Right. We're immersed into hip-hop. Yeah. 
So you see that on us. We're not trying to be it. We are it because right. we grew up in it. Right. I grew up listening to the Buster Rhymes. I grew up listening to Questlove mm-hmm. uh, and The Roots. I grew up listening to Rock Kim, mm-hmm. Tupac, B.I.G., uh, Torres B.I.G., uh, Big. I grew up listening to this stuff. Some of the stuff they're talking about, I saw some of this stuff. <laughs> or I heard about some of it. I would see it down the road. My dad is, my, my father's a state police mm-hmm. back home. So you would, he would come back home, man. I had to pull somebody over so-and-so. And you heard what happened down here at so-and-so house. So these things I would hear, what they were rapping about, about yeah. in my community, my small community, because it wasn't much in right. Edytown, South Carolina. Not saying nothing bad, but, you know, beautiful community but there's a lot of you know older folks that's that's still there and then the kids that go to elementary school and high school and middle school there man uh still currently in edytown south Carolina. my parents are, are there you know you know it's a place where you can kind of you can retire and uh be okay because everybody know each other you know they'll help you out mm-hmm. uh the family it's family oriented man uh but like you said having those different languages and dialects man is just and for me back where i'm from you would think that we got two languages too right because while i'm from the charleston south carolina we uh my family's from the, the gullah geechee culture yeah so if i speak gullah geechee to you right now uh like for example hey bobble no boy at fish university about to bam up on them thing there basically what i just said uh the students at fish university on the drum line, they're about to play a cadence, and they're about to they're about to light it up in that short phrase. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we call it Geechee. They call mm-hmm. it Geechee Gullah, the Gullah dialect, because mm-hmm. of the the the, the African um, slaves and the African travelers that came. They were trying to speak the language of, of course, Queen's English, mm-hmm. uh, quote unquote. They say and they were trying to speak. And that lingo, so they had certain words and phrases that they understood each other uh, uh, insane. and saying. And it just, it's, uh, you would think. And, and if I spoke like that, mm-hmm. you know, fluently, now I, I don't speak like that now. I can. I can go into that mode, but mm-hmm. I, I pride myself to not do that because I'm an educator. Uh, but I'm, I'm proud of uh, my culture, the Gullah Geechee culture. Now the Gullah Geechee culture is not, not a thing that people just, people used to laugh at us speaking in that way, they, they would tell me that you can't talk. You talk incorrectly. Mm-hmm. Now, everybody wants to speak Gullah. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to speak like the Jamaicans. Everybody wants to speak that, that Geechee Gullah dialect now. Mm-hmm. It's popular now, quote unquote. They have Instagram pages and Facebook and TikTok. Mm-hmm. They have a whole entire channel. They have clothing. They have shirts, hats. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in this, yeah. <laughs> in the culture. Yeah. That's that's my family, you know the Gullah Geechee uh, culture. That that's that's the part of me. my grandmother still speaks Geechee fluently. So it's just a beautiful thing. That's the common thing that I did see in Zimbabwe. Some phrases that they said in in the Shona mm-hmm. uh, uh, language. It was very similar to the Geechee Gullah uh, that I grew up listening to and talking yeah. as a kid. Um, and as a teenager growing up around, I said, man, that's like when they say hello in the Shona language, it's Ayabo. Ayabo. Home, where I'm from in Charleston, South Carolina, when they say, what's up? How you doing? Hey, what's going on, boy? 
A Wasabo, very similar. Yeah. If I remember, uh, a lot of that culture was like in a very small, like somewhat remote yep. part. And that's part of the reason that it that it yep. actually lasted as long or has lasted yep. continuously. Yep. That is true, man. It's parts of Charleston, the Hilton Head Islands. They're like a, they call it Mosquito Island. Mm-hmm. Um, you can look this up, you know, on they have a whole entire, you know, tours and stuff yep. um, in Charleston currently right now. Uh, where they talk about the people of Mosquito Island had it on church and everything. Uh, but it, that is very true that they had, we had our own, some of our ancestors had their own place where they grew up. And I was recently home in John John's Island, uh, South Carolina, uh, for a family member home going. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can hear the Geechee and the Gullah and all of that and, and the vocals. And after the home going service, the food that we ate, it was just it. The culture was straight Gucci Gullah. We had red rice and and um and and sausage. We had crab, uh, crab meat. We had shrimp. All this fresh water, uh, you know, on food from the ocean, uh, from the water, mm-hmm. you know, because we live by the Atlantic Ocean, so we yeah. get that stuff fresh. Like the people go crab, uh, go crabbing. They go fishing. They get crab or uh, a uh, uh, shrimp. I'll go to the market get it. Some people like my dad. He goes fishing. He likes getting catching rock fish and, ca- and crappy fish. So when I go home. I beg him to cook me <laughs> right. some crappy fish. I want rock fish. So does he hand? No, does wait, wait. Does he hand you a fishing pole? Like you're gonna you're gonna get it with me? Well, sometimes he used to do that. Like we're going fishing, and yeah, then we'll, yeah. we'll eat, eat afterwards. Like we got, I got to work for it. Go yeah, fishing yeah, of course. Boat. Yeah, uh, that was the most fun part. Actually, it's that was fun for me. It still uh-huh. is now. Even when I go home now, uh, I'm like, Dad, can we go fishing? Daddy be like, Yes, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> he loves fishing, mm-hmm. so I go fishing with him, man. Catch, catch uh-huh. a couple of uh, you know fish. We might catch you know uh, fifteen to twenty fish, and Daddy will clean them, scale them, yeah, put them in the flour, put in the uh, seasoning on it, and fry it. We got fish for dinner. With grits, fish and grits. <laughs> yeah. All right. I finish up with a segment called Random Ask Questions. <laughs> so, uh, and so the first couple aren't random and then they get a little bit more. But the first question is uh, Thomas, what's an issue in percussion education that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? I would say, man, when we get students coming in, they don't. When I ask them, can you play for melodic stuff? They have an issue with, they've been playing drum set all their life or playing marching band. When I start saying, let me hear B flat scale, uh, two octaves, they panic, they pause, and I'm like, you didn't pay attention to your band director when he's talking about B flat scale and with the horn players? You didn't. So you just sat, sat in the back and just chill, not listen. You didn't pick up a bell set and try to attempt. So you didn't, really? So when they tell me that, and I know that these band directors are trying their best yeah. to teach melodic stuff, and the kids are not paying attention, they ain't using the technique and not like that, but they're doing the best they can to get them, get them through it. So that would be one of the things them not knowing, not only on the, the aspect of playing uh, mallet percussion, but like knowing that the one goes to the five, 
Right. Five goes back to one. Do not play crazy in that chord structure. Yeah. And percussion and drum set are in marching band. Do not go crazy. That's yeah. not the time. I said, do you hear that chord structure right there? That two five chord going mm-hmm. to one. Do you hear it? And I'm asking them this night. They shaking their head. Yeah. They ain't hearing it. They're not. They're not listening. And I have to make them listen. Yeah. I have to make them stop playing and listen. So you hear how that goes? That's why I want that shuffle to go right there. Yeah. It's because it's going to connect that part. And I want you to phrase along with the horn players on that two, five, one chord. Right. Asking the percussionist to hear it. Like, I guess under my skin, like they're hearing the music, but they're like just playing whatever. Right. Just being fly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> playing whatever, jamming. Mm-hmm. But they ain't listening. They're playing loud the whole time. So, man, you got to compensate for the instrumentalists. Yeah. So that, that would be a pet peeve of mine, that normal melodic stuff. Right. And they they ignoring it, but they hear it. They hear it, but they're ignoring that they hear yeah. melodic stuff. All right, next question. Take this wherever you want it to go. Um, being an African-American in a mostly white percussion field, your thoughts. Mm. Go wherever you want with it. Man, we are seeing most black percussionists. We grew up in church, most mm. of us. Grew up in church playing. So nine times in ten, there's a drum set there <laughs> at the church. If you if you had a church that had drum set there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we normally they we, we gravitate to playing drum set, or if you were in marching band, uh, of course, you play snare, a bass drum, a tenor drum. Mm-hmm. That's just the thing, you know, for us. And for for me, um, I, I got a good one for you. Mm-hmm. My community I grew up in, we didn't get a marimba until my last year of high school. Mm-hmm. I didn't see a melodic instrument like that until my last year. So a lot of the stuff that we did with battery percussion, and when it comes came to melodic things, we might have played uh, the bell set. We had girls that played bells mm-hmm. at our school. But, you know, I did a little bit of it, but I, I got more into it, man, towards my last year. And my first year of, of college, mm-hmm. I got into playing more melodic things, man. So when I would go to high schools like Hanahan High School, that was predominantly white, or Stratford High School, they had the instrumentation. They had the, the actual, um, they had the support of the community, had the money, the resource right. to have those things. So, you know, that's, that was a big difference at, at, in, my, in my community versus mm-hmm. being in Bruce Creek, um, South Carolina, uh, being in Somerville, South Carolina, bigger programs. Yeah. And they catered more to those programs and gave them more funding because they played uh, in those competitions that did core style music. They wasn't doing hip hop and R&B. Understand that they're doing it now, <laughs> you know, because that's the that's the thing now. You know, they right. you know, like when I saw Charleston Southern, uh, Charleston uh, uh, Southern mm-hmm. uh, marching band. Yeah, they were playing ludicrous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. I said, "Yeah, of course well, not, man. Y'all ain't supposed to be doing that." Well, but my thing is, teacher went to Charleston Southern. He wasn't talking about no Buster Rhymes. He was talking about concert band music. Yeah, and well, DCI. Well, but the thing is, is like the hip hop is the pop music. Like that is the most popular yeah. pop music now. So everybody yeah. knows it. <laughs> yeah, everybody knows it, man. Yeah, everybody knows. You even kept. I, even with Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt plays Stevie Wonder on on the on the field. 
They'll mm-hmm. play a whole Stevie show. Yeah. And you would think they'll play, oh, they about to do something like a show from the cadets. Because the cadets and uh, Madison Scout, when they have DCI here in town, mm-hmm. they go to Vanderbilt and they do like a practice show yep. at Vanderbilt. So people are invited and they come. Mm-hmm. So you would think, oh, they're going to do something like the cadets, the Madison Scouts. Right. Not so. <laughs> they're, they're marching like them, but they're doing that on the field yeah. at Vanderbilt Games. Yeah. So that's the hip thing about what they're doing, you know. But I would see this, you know, I would see the show band style and the core style um, as, a, as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And at first, I was like, "Man, that's whack." <laughs> oh, the core style. I was doing because because I grew up doing a lot of of the show uh, style, show style, the high the high, so left, the high thinking, knee stuff, and yeah, I didn't know no better. I was like, man, "Sure, that's not it." <laughs> but I started getting into DCI. Yeah, I was like, "Man, they are dope." Yeah, I was like, like raving for the Madison Scouts, man. Mm-hmm. Anything they play. I was like, man, that that's that's some nice music right there. Who's that by? Mm-hmm. And my my uh, my one of my favorite bands from that time was Phantom Arrangement. They would play mm-hmm. a lot of things warm and dark, yeah. uh, sounding. You know, I would love that 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 sound from that band. Yeah. Well, and they would do, and Phantom would would do was kind of known for a long time as the as like the classical music. They yep. would do classical mu- music arrangements for their yep. shows. Sure did. Yeah. Well, what's been cool with like through PASIC and stuff is that finally we're starting like PASIC. I mean, because they ignored it, not because or because mm-hmm. they had no idea. Um, they're like, we're finally starting to see like the range of HBCU bands. Yeah. Um, but it's only been like the last five years. That, last five years. Yeah. It's it, the last five years. So I would tell you the styles were the biggest thing for me. Like, you know, the way that we hold our sticks and play. Yeah. Um, the stick height, all that stuff was a big difference for me and the and the more of the show band HBCU style versus at a uh DCI core style school. Mm-hmm. Um over the years, schools like North Fork State, right, North Carolina A and T, a hybrid, Bethune Cookman yep. University, they have incorporated the core style, yep, Virginia State. University yep. Benedict College, my 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 alma mater started incorporating the core style into the show band style. So now you see schools like Bethune Cookman playing those those fast, uh, playing double beat and mm-hmm. playing multiple uh, bass drum lines, and yeah. you you hear them playing some stuff solos and stuff from the cadets and whatnot. Right. Uh, there are guys that audition for the cadets and Madison Scouts. Some of those guys go to Norfolk yeah. State, and they all this because the style is so close. Yeah. It's so close to it, man. Like, you know, they just they don't even miss a beat. But I will say that the different styles at, at one time, um, we we didn't uh cross styles at one time until we went, went to basic, yeah, some you know, over the years and started studying things, started saying, you know what, it's really not no different. The only thing is that they they play down here, they don't play up here right. like Florida AM, they play mm-hmm. all this, their yeah. windows yeah. way up here. Versus Stone Cookman, they're playing. They're, everything is down here. They, they're controlling right. what they're doing. They're not overplaying. Right. Uh, so right. a lot of the programs are starting to adapt to that. Even Tennessee State, they're starting to adapt to 
changing some things. So you still hear the style mm-hmm. of what they did, that funk style, Tennessee yeah. State, but you start to see them change technique-wise, play better yeah. on the drums. All of that stuff is, is, is showing now, man. Um, even at Fish University, I have them doing that same thing that, that we all learned at Benedict mm-hmm. uh, with Dr. James Sickhike and everything, man. Yeah. It's, I know it's, I mean, it's one of the things when you, you probably, I'm sure you noticed this when you were a master's student that you have to flip the switch between teaching student to like, you have to just go back and forth and it's got to be an easy switch back because you don't have time frequently to even transition from one to the other. Right. It really is, man. To transition from one to, to another, you got to change, still got to change your mindset. Grad school was more so, you still got people guiding you, but it's like, do you want this? Yeah. Do you really, really want this? And if you do, are you going to put forth the work that it takes to do it? Because if you're not, you need to go ahead and change your field of study and mm-hmm. go somewhere, uh, get a job somewhere, a regular job with a bachelor's degree. And I, I didn't want to do that. I said, I don't want to get a regular job, man. Mm-hmm. And I've done, I've done the regular job thing. I work a nine to five that's non-related to music and teaching and it was cool at first but i really did not like it man eventually within a year i was like i can't do this i ain't i'm not gonna be doing this for the next couple of years working with apple i worked with apple for about a year change man but by the end of it i was like tired of dealing with customers i said man i make more money on stage playing drums in one night than i would make in one uh in two days (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, working with Apple. So I'm like, I hang that up, man. And the doors started opening, man. When I left that, I, you know, things started open up more for me at Fisk. Uh, things started open up more for me, and you know, in in the education, the job market for educating students here in town, and gigs started flowing like more and more and more and more. Uh, it always happens that way. I'll go do something odd because I got to do it. Got to pay the bills, got to do what I got to do. But it, it, it always happens that way that I end up getting busy what I'm supposed to be doing. This is the beautiful, beautiful thing of it all, man. Us as percussion educators, because percussion, man, uh, when you're a full-time percussionist uh, in this in this arena, in this day and time, like you got to find some other avenues, man, along with teaching. Uh, when you're not teaching, you got to be like, well, what if they're doing some summer camps? I can possibly do a summer camp, possibly do some lessons at a, at, at a music academy. I make my own studio. So that's what I've done since 2010, having my own percussion studio, man, teaching private lessons. So that always goes on. I'm sure it's been imparted to you with Dr. Daniels or just being in Nashville that you have to have multiple ways yes. of doing business because yes. something's going to drop off and then yes. you can either expand what you're already doing or find the new thing. Or, you know, in your case, because you're gigging so much, find a new gig that's going to kind of cover what you left off. Yes, that's exactly what Dr. Daniels told me when I was in grad school. He would always get on me. You got a job? I'm like, Doc, what you talking about, man? I play every weekend, man, back to back Fridays and Saturdays and on Sundays. What do you mean I got a job? That is my job. Now, nah, you got a part-time job somewhere. You know, I used to work at a hotel. Part-time I was in grad school. I had to do, do what I had to do, had to, had to do, man. 
you, you got to work in this life, man. You just can't be like, well, this is going to be it unless you sign a contract full time and you tenure a tenure contract, uh, even if it's non tenure and it's full time and they're paying, you know, 50, 60 grand, uh, then, you know, you better do do your best. Do, do a great, great, great job with that one year contract so they can renew that contract. Uh, but even even then, man, you still got to be out doing things and be relative to what your students are going to be doing. I choose. I, I want to record. I want to do this. I want to do that. So that's why I got into like the, the sound design thing. Uh, if you look at on my website, I have on my bio that I do sound design as well. So I'm learning about music production. Um, and now, nowadays, uh, a lot of us as, as percussion educators, music educators, even regular K to 12 or other education, other arenas, they have to learn how to use Zoom and, and different platforms and have to be an actual audio engineer, their own audio engineer uh, to operate it. But that's been the, the, the thing that I've been seeing uh, this past year is that I'm, I'm having to step into being an audio engineer along with my assistant band director. We have to, we had to record the students. He brought a little um, USB microphone. He had audacity to record them more. Uh, we he did like the the, uh, the editing on that. I'm, I'm looking at how how he's editing stuff and how he does that. On my end, I had to go to the music studio. Uh, luckily, I have a lot of friends. I have a few friends that's music producers, so it's nothing for me to hey man. Uh, I need to come to the studio, man, and cut some tracks for the band. Can you know? I, I got some music. Can we clean it up? Bam! Pay them what what they what their rate is, family rate. <laughs> some people say, mm-hmm. and they up everything for me, and we go from there, man. And you know, and 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 in in the actual exchange of things, I get something out of it. But what they get out of me, if they need drums or percussion on a, a track or two or three for artists that they're producing for. They got a drummer that they can call, percussionist that can call to record those tracks. And he ain't breaking the bank, still paying me. Well, I do the session. Now I'm on the session with, I don't know who the recording went, could be recorded with Nicki Minaj mm-hmm. that day. I don't know. <laughs> it happens, man. Uh, it, yeah. it, it, it happens like that. Uh, here in Nashville, especially, it can. Uh, it could end up on somebody like Rick Ross' album, uh, end up on. Childish Gambino or uh, shoot, J. Cole, who just dropped my album. My, my stuff could be on there, and I don't know it. <laughs> Tell me, hey, man, by the way, man, that stuff we did with Sound Design is on J. Cole's album. Really? <laughs> Was like, I credited? Because <laughs> the work, I don't know. I, I'm just recording, I, and right. once I record it, I, I don't really worry myself about it. It's like, and I go on down the line, like, yeah, that stuff was used on so. Oh, really? Okay. You know, I might I'll post it on Facebook, Instagram, let the students see it, and I get a ah, hooray, congratulations yeah, yeah. for a little bit. Then I got to move on, right. <laughs> but continue to build the program, man. Yeah. Uh, but that's the beautiful thing about music, man. You get those moments, man, in life that you can celebrate uh, your accomplishments. Today, I got to celebrate my students that played on the drum line. Uh, at, at Fisk um, about 
three, four of them graduated today. Like I was, I thought it was about that time because yeah. four years ago they came to me, uh, like about five, six of them. Hey, we want to be on the drum line, and we went from there. All this and them showed them what they needed to know. Four of them graduated today. Um, you know, I, I just felt very proud to see students that I work with. They graduated, got their bachelor's degree to get today. They're young ladies and young men. They're in the real world, man. Um, and what they learned in drumline helped them to matriculate through fists to finish their degree, the discipline to just take care of things, man, and just stay the course. Uh, it's just a beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. Uh, has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? <laughs> I'm laughing because the kids, they, they're so funny, man. Uh, in fact, we had a alumni came on Zoom this year and a few of them came on. They talked about the years of being in drumline at Fist. They already graduated. And they said, man, there were times that we was in drumline practice. It was very funny. It was interesting and funny. You know, spend walking there and say, hey, if y'all gonna do it, better do it right. If we're not gonna do it, don't don't do it at all. <laughs> when they said that, and I, I go back in my memory bank, wow. <laughs> I used to say that. Yeah. And they started laughing. And I started, I'm like, wow, I did used to say that. It was so on point that uh I, I'm like, man, maybe I need to implement that now again. Watch it. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, you know, like, oh, look here, if it don't sound right, if it don't look right, please don't do it. Let's do something else. Don't do it at all. <laughs> I mean, to the T, they had me down back. <laughs> Those, my two favorite female drummers, they always were there at every, mostly every practice. One of them graduated today with a master's in clinical science. Um, the other she's in grad school right now, but they would always be there and they would imitate how we would act. Cause I had another, another guy helping me to teach drum line, but they were really real funny about it. Like Mr. Spence said, do it like this. You play like this and you hit the drum like that. <laughs> L. <laughs> Make that L when you hit that to the drum. Make that L. <laughs> yep. They were so funny, so 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 funny. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that 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 was one one of the impersonations. Me telling them, "Don't do it at all. If you're not going to do the job, the performance right, don't do that at all. Let's find something else to put that in in that part of the show, and and don't put no. I don't want no trash. I don't want none of that. <laughs> I don't want I want I want perfection." I want we're Fish University. We 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 have to be here. <laughs> Elite. <laughs> Elite. Yeah. But they all that hand <laughs> all of that stuff. They're funny. They're funny. That's awesome. That's that's wonderful. All right. Next up, what is the most impractical item of clothing you own? Everything I wear, man. It's it's practical what I have on, man. I would say more so when, when I dress when I dress up like I'm one of the students. Like if I come on campus with like jeans and Air Force Ones and and uh, a fitted cap and uh, you know and a like a you know just 
nothing, not this, not no nautical, but like wearing what they wear to class. That's uh, the the type of clothing items that I don't need to be wearing. (laughs) (laughs) Pressing down, like, you know, like I'm going to the mall. I'm about to, on a date, going to have a good time with friends. That's just, uh, that's just one of those things that <laughs> I remember coming on campus dressing down and one of my colleagues looked at me and said, Professor Spain, you're blending in. And I was like, what do you mean by that? Looking like college students wearing the Air Force Ones, wearing jeans and wearing a little, you know, whatever they were into at that time. Uh, but that would be my clothing item that that's not <laughs> you should not be wearing. <laughs> what is a great movie and what is a terrible movie? A great movie. I like the Avengers. Mm. The I love that. A terrible movie. Hmm. When I saw the Joker, mm. it was cool. But I was really expecting, like, what, as a kid, I grew up watching Batman. And I'm really expecting the Joker to be, like, how he was on the cartoon, Batman. He was, but they, like, tell his story of how he got to be the Joker. It was cool, but it wasn't like, uh, when you see Batman Returns, like, it was very action-oriented. Not, not to take away from the Joker, but it was... There's so much action. It's like it kept you on your seat. The Joker kind of kept you on your seat, but it's like, mm, is this it? Really? So are they going to write another sequel? <laughs> Those, when I saw that in the, mo- in the movie theater, man, before COVID. <laughs> All right. What is your biggest kitchen mess up? I should have cooked that salmon much longer. And I can cook salmon, but mm-hmm. I cooked salmon and I did not feel well. <laughs> and I told my pastor, said, well, you should have fried it or something like that. Uh, I probably grilled, like pan fry it or something. It would have been okay. But I yeah. think I baked it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I should have pan fried it instead. Uh, that just that didn't <laughs> come out like I wanted it. To come out, but I should have fried it, man. I I grilled it, get up, put it on the grill. That would have been good. Like wrap it up in some aluminum foil and grill it, let it cook, slow cook. I know how to cook it now. <laughs> I gotcha. Did you did you eat the whole thing? Were you? I guess you might have been hungry and you. Whole thing, but now now how I do it? Like I do canned salmon, okay. and I do like a sauces, mm. like anything like andouille sauces or. Uh, something like hearsize smoked sauces or rajwood mm-hmm. with kind of a little kick to it. Cut that up in there. Onions and bell pepper. And I cook it like that. Use uh, Tony seasoning. Mm-hmm. That's what I use on my on my on my meat. Seafood, chicken, pork chops, ribs. It's either lorries or Tony seasoning. You should try it out. Tony seasoning is real good. That sounds good. You're making me hungry now. Uh, (laughs) All right. Uh, Do you have a sports fandom? I like the Dallas Cowboys. Okay. Just a little kid. I like the Dallas Cowboys. 
I like watching the tight Tennessee Titans play. Um, basketball wise, I would say more so for me, uh, when LeBron was at, uh, <laughs> was at, uh, in, in his hometown, uh, I was, I was into, what, what was his team? The Cavs. The Cavs. I was into the Cavs, man, when he was there. Uh, now it's like, you know, I just like watching the NBA in the, the finals. Mm-hmm. Even watch watch any this year, but I like to watch the finals, man. You know that everybody's talking hype about LA Lakers going all the way. So you know, I just like to watch the NBA finals. Period. Whoever wins, man, uh, that that that's you know that's what I'm going with. <laughs> yeah, kind of kind of bandwagon type kind with NBA, but football, uh, Dallas Cowboys all day every day. What I lose. Yeah, well, that, that, that's what's kind of I mean, that's what one of the things that's kind of interesting about growing up in South Carolina is that it's not obvious, uh, you know, what what someone's sports fandom is, because it could be like a college thing. Um, but there's not much in the way of pro sports, with the exception of like the Panthers. Yeah, the uh, Panthers. you know, I saw that all my life. But my family, my dad, my uncle, my cousins, they're Dallas, Dallas Cowboy fans. Some of them are Steeler fans, and then the other half is like San Francisco 49ers. But everybody, everybody in Span family is either Steeler fan mm-hmm. or Cowboys. That that is pretty bandwagon. Don't you imagine with those two, two franchises? <laughs> <laughs> Whether you lose or win, like in this, that's just how it is, man. You know, everybody's on that on that wagon. <laughs> What's something uh, probably in pop culture wise that if you were to meet someone and this and that person said, I like like whatever that is. And then you're like, we're good. Heard all I need to hear. What would that be for you? Barbecue. <laughs> just barbecue. Just straightforward. Barbecue. I'm, I'm a regular person, man. Like, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm on stage playing for people and stuff, but a lot of these people, some of these people I played with, man, and they're regular everyday people, man. Like when I met Jill Scott, I'm pretty sure she would have said, "Hey, I like chocolate chip cookies." I'm like, "Hey, I like chocolate chip cookies too." <laughs> yeah, I like to go to Christie's cookies to get mine. Uh, all the Nestle cookies, I like to bake them in in the, in the oven where they real real soft and gooey. Yeah, and then I let them sit on the oven so it can be real soft when I buy into it. That would be a thing that I'd be like, yeah, go on on about the, the the type of you know the Nestle chocolate cookies, you know the Christie's cookies. That would be for me. I like food, so you talk about food with me, man. I go all day, Doc. <laughs> awesome. All right, next up, um, where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? I want to go to L.A. I've never been to L.A. I flew into Texas. That's the furthest I went west, and I've been around the world, but I've never been to L.A. And Japan. I want to go to Japan. Those are two places that I would love to go to, L.A. and Japan. Uh, why Japan? Uh, the culture, Japanese culture. I just love how, you know, being when I was over in, in the Asian culture, uh, I just love how they do things. Um, uh, just they, they stick true to it. They don't, they don't uh, stay away from. It. They really stick true to their culture, 
traditions and all of that. When I was in Thailand and Cambodia, they were like, uh, there are certain things that that we could not do uh, because it's a part of their religious backgrounds and stuff. You know, you can't walk over there. You go walk over there, you know, walk around this way. So, so they were very strict about it. They were like not broken, breaking any rules about their culture. So that's what I love about the Asian Japanese culture. Uh, they really stick true to what their traditions are. They still, they pass that on. They hold true to it. All right. What is either the funniest, strangest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you? Woo! When we were in Pakistan, a fatwa was uh, put out against us. Because, uh, and yeah, we literally, and this is what happened. I was on stage playing. We stopped playing because they did the call of prayer. Call of prayer and Muzaffar's Bad, Pakistan, is very serious. The, the, the Muslims there, they take their prayer serious. So we got off stage in respect of the, the Muslim, the Islamic religion, and we uh, respected the prayer time. So we did that. We waited in the green room for about 30 minutes, got back on stage. We were told that it was okay for us to continue on the music because the call to prayer, quote unquote, was over. Got back on stage. Within about five minutes of us playing, Pete, I literally saw the long poster of us that was hanging up on the poles on fire. I saw people in the crowd with with um, wooden sticks, fire sticks, sticks with fire on the end of it, coming towards the 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 stage. They were about to be real, kill us, yeah, because interrupting the call of prayer. They had to immediately the military and soldiers there in Pakistan to get us off stage and guard the door. They had to fight these people off of Muzaffar's bond to not hurt or harm the U.S. citizens. We did not know that your call of prayer was over. We didn't know. But uh, like I tell my students, I've witnessed being, you know, uh, people about to shoot at us or kill us. Uh, many times could have happened overseas. I was in some dangerous places. Um, there in Pakistan, when we when we did that trip, everywhere we went, we had soldiers with us, and there were soldiers with AK-47s guarding the band. Only place we went to. The other places, I don't know if they had a gun. They might have had a gun on the side, but Pakistan, they had AK-47s. Get out of the way. Move. Get out of the way. They were doing that. They, they're coming through. <laughs> it, it was just serious, and we were told, don't go outside of the, the hotel. Do not go near the windows of the hotel because when, once they see that you are a actual U.S. citizen, they will target you, start asking you questions about why you're here and everything. And it's like, you know, just lie. Just tell them you do something else. Don't don't even tell them the truth. Uh, just, just don't. But that was a very interesting moment in my performance career. Like, you know, they set the poster that was had our on it on fire and had uh, wooden sticks with fire on it like coming towards the 
Like, hey, we're coming to get y'all. We're coming to get whatever in their language. We're going to kill A lot of them spoke English very fluently. Uh, but that was a uh, very, very threatening moment <laughs> in my playing career. I don't think I ever told my, my, my parents that. Like, you know, killed in Pakistan. Uh, never told y'all that. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how did that... So okay, so they you you're whisked away. The soldiers are trying to keep everyone away. Mm-hmm. How does it end? How it ends? One of the embassy workers uh, that was working with us, that was you know translating and everything and telling us about the culture, he basically calmed them down. He had to, had a conversation with them like they're from the U.S. They already had went off stage for the call to prayer the first time. We were told by the U.S. Embassy that it was okay for us to go back on stage. So he had explained all of this to them that they didn't know that the call of prayer was still going on. And when usually when the call of prayer goes on, Pete, in a place like Muzaffar, Pakistan, just what happens? You hear you hear this in a loud speaker. You hear this drone going on. And immediately people stop and they pray. And wherever they are, they get in their little prayer uh, place and they, they pray, man. They go to prayer immediately. Uh, beautiful thing when you see it. Um, and it's, it's, it's musical, but it's, it's, it's not musical at the same time. It's very musical when they, they're singing their prayers and stuff. Uh, but how we got out of that was he calmed them down by explaining to them that, you know, this is not that type of party. And if you try, you will be killed by the military that's here. The U.S. military will kill you if you try to harm the U.S. citizens. That's what the State Department, <laughs> you will get killed. <laughs> so that's basically how that ended. And, you know, they eventually kind of, they backed off, man. They really, they backed off from it because they, they didn't want to be harmed. Uh, Pakistanis are, are cool people, but when you disrespect their religion or their call of prayer, they, they're a whole different beast, whole different beast. But that, that was a talk in the military police being like this with guns in their hand <laughs> that ended that, that situation. Got it. Did, was that like the last gig that of that thing or did you have, did you finish that gig or did you just yep. move they, on to the next thing? Particular night we finished that night and then we continued on through the other trips in Pakistan. Gotcha. All right. And lastly, Thomas, what one piece of art, whether it's music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, whatever, has impacted you the most recently? Oh, recently, (laughs) I've been looking at uh, Romeo and this thing on Facebook called Drum Idea. Uh, it's like a hashtag drum idea, like a page on Facebook, and they have different drummers like Billy Cobham was on there. Uh, you have people like uh, Carl Allen, uh, who, who I, whom I met when I was at Benedict. Uh, they have different drummers that come on there that, that just, you know, play. Uh, Mike Mitchell, um, Steve Gadd, Chris Daddy Dave, all those guys they put up on Drum Idea on Facebook. Uh, so I, I've been really into that lately. And then YouTube, 
uh, wise, I like to get into the videos that guys are like got their own channel that's showing how to play drums. Uh, then with my kids, my little kids, I showed them uh, Baby Boy Drummer. Baby Boy Drummer has his own page, uh, his own, own uh, channel on YouTube. I usually show that to my little, the little kids that I teach drum drum set lessons to. I said, look at this six-year-old. He's like a couple of years younger than you. And he's playing drums like a grown man. And his two-year-old sister is like playing drums too. Yeah. Like it's an amazing thing to see, you know, those kids hold the sticks correctly. The fulcrum grip is there. And they're two and six years old. It's just crazy to me, but you know, the mom and dad has invested um into them. And then when Eric Moore is like a good friend of yours, he's like an uncle, uh, like a uh like an uncle or family member to you, then of course you can be able to play <laughs> drums very well. But Eric Moore met them at AM and they said that Eric Moore um donated some drums to them, uh the drums that they got now. Uh, that they show on the uh, DW kid and the Sonar kid that was do donated by Eric Moore. So he's like kind of just took, like he's like a nephew, like not a real nephew, but like, you know, like a mm -hmm. drum nephew to him, uh, baby boy drummer. So he's poured into it. So he watches videos. And, and uh, Eric Moore, of course, as well. Uh, dig how he plays, man. Fast hands. Very fast hands. And Tiny Desk. I'm sorry, I said what was the last thing? NPR Tiny Desk. Oh yeah. Just I did live perform. Yeah, that's that's a that's always those, those are always great. Almost only if just because it's it's pretty short. Like so you get like the best 15 to 20 minutes of whoever's <laughs> doing it. <laughs> yep. 15 minutes of you know of, of time, man. Uh, I had some friends that performed on that. Uh, uh, with a with a rapper named Boz, man, and they had 15 minutes of doing their thing. Ron Gilmore and uh, my um, good buddy Jonathan Lucas here in town, uh, drummer, good drummer friend of mine, drum colleague, uh, drum teacher colleague. Uh, they doing their thing, but it's like 15 minutes of glory, tiny desk, doing your thing, and that's it. <laughs> awesome. That is it, man. All right, Thomas, we are done. Man, Pete, thank you. Yo, this has been awesome. Really man, this has been well. awesome, man. I, I you know, I, I've been wanting to talk on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let Javon know that. <laughs> Don't tell him that. <laughs> Don't tell him that at all. Well, so I want to be on the podcast. Well, that's awesome. Hint, hint, hint. <laughs> right. You just need to get back in touch with me. That's all. It. I like, man, I keep seeing Teddy Hall on podcasts and for pacing and yeah. for PAS. And I'm like, man, shoot, well, somebody yeah. gonna ask me to be on the podcast. Ask me my, my take on cussing yeah. in, in, in at HBCUs and stuff, man, yeah. in the in the black community. I, I want to talk. Yeah. I'm on a diversity committee uh yeah. with, with with PAS. Mm -hmm. I, I want to have a voice. <laughs> yeah. I hear you. Man, Pete, it was a pleasure, man. Yeah. And we'll be talking, brother. A huge amount of thanks to Thomas for his time and his good spirits throughout the interviews. It was a blast. 
I look forward to seeing him again in person really soon as we are both adults. And I hope all continues to go well for him, particularly as I hope he is able to navigate a mostly normal marching season at Fisk. This week's rave is the 1982 autobiographical travel book, Blue Highways, written by William Least Heat Moon. I was first made aware of this book when I attended a conference about 10 years ago and saw a presentation about how an attendee was going to trace the Blue Highways trail 30 years or so after the book came out and try to reconnect with the people and the places that were explored in the book. Soon after I'd heard about it, I then, surprisingly, found the book in my father's library and asked to borrow it. Apparently, he had been gifted this book by my cousin. So then the book sat on my shelf for years. And I just finished reading it this week. And guess what? It is fantastic. The book follows the author's travels along much of the exterior of the lower 48 states in the United States. The author has both returned from his time in the Vietnam War, and his marriage has dissolved, and he's looking for a clean start. He decides to buy a white van called Ghost Dancer that he's going to travel and live in on the blue highways of America, focusing on the offbeat roads, essentially any roads that were off of the interstate, and getting to know the country through its scenery, animals, birds, geography, and most importantly, through its people. Before I started the book, I was not aware of the centrality of Missouri to his story. For one, the author eventually got his PhD from Mizzou. He was living near Kansas City when the book begins, and he starts his trip from Columbia, Missouri, which is where I live. That was wild. And I had not bargained for that. From his starting point in Columbia, he travels east to North Carolina and then stays on the roads in the coastal and border parts of the country, making a full trip all the way around. The whole thing takes about eight to nine months from the years, mostly around 1978. What is also amazing is his ability to recall, describe, and research all of the nature that he comes across. His descriptions of animals and birds in particular, and the geography of the places is very specific and clear. He also spends a lot of time talking to folks who talk about a lot of the lesser known local histories that are part of many of small towns within the United States. The best parts of the book are the conversations. The author has an ear for correctly portraying each person he talks to. Relatedly, one of the best segments is when the author makes a trip to Selma, Alabama, about 13 years after the Civil Rights March for Voting Rights. He is able to talk to many black and white folks, trying to figure out what's changed since that march. If you follow the politics of the current moment, the answers that he gets from those he talks to will not surprise you and I'll leave it there. On a personal note, I have to mention that this other item came up where the author is passing through upstate New York and one of the folks he talks to rattles off a bunch of Italian and Sicilian last names. Fine. And in that run of names is Zambito. 
what? This totally blew my mind. I don't know that it's a Zambito that I am particularly closely related to. Seriously, it doesn't matter. My last name is in a book. And if that doesn't hook you into Blue Highways, then I don't know what will. Check out William Least Heat Moon's Blue Highways. You'll be glad you did. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. Show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's Perk Pod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.